Everyone, please remain standing and let's turn in our Bibles to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, we'll read verses 1 and 2, and that will be the text for our sermon this morning. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your holy word and how it teaches us, it convicts us, it challenges us, it tells us about the Lord Jesus Christ and his gospel. We pray now that as we hear it read and preached, that you would open our ears, our hearts to receive it, and by your spirit, help us to understand it and to put it into practice. We ask in the name of Christ, amen. You may be seated. So for right out a year and a half now, we've been mining and going through Paul's letter to these Christians at Rome. And as we come to this last section, really the last, if you want to call it a half, there's chapters 1 through 11 and then chapters 12 through 16, as we come to the beginning of that last portion of his letter, Paul now begins to address the Christian life. We've been looking at the gospel of God and all the various aspects of it and the doctrines containing the gospel of Christ Jesus. And now we see here that Paul lays down the ethic for the Christian. And so as we read through and work our way through the remaining parts of this letter, we'll see that Paul begins to discuss our relationship with others, our relationship to the state. He talks about Christian love. And he'll speak about Christian liberty, among other things. And so we have these things in store for us ahead. The old commentator Charles Hodge put it this way concerning this hinge here at chapter 12 and verse 1. He said of Paul, he brings the whole discussion to bear as motive for the devotion to God. And so in these first two verses, which are familiar to most or many Christians, Paul here prescribes uh, what we could say are four components of the Christian life. There's more to the Christian life than this, but if you want to summarize the Christian life in one way, Paul does it here, and I think he expands on this as he finishes his letter. And as we will see, these four components are in light of what God has done through Christ Jesus in the gospel. These are the things we should do in light of the gospel as we think about it, meditate upon it, and appreciate it. This is what God calls us to do. And so that's what we see here in these two verses. And so then what are these four components of the Christian life. Well, the first one we see here is that the Christian life is a life of service, right? We see that there in verse 1. He says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable 
to God, which is your reasonable service. And as we think about this, I think, personally, I think that the concept of service is forgotten today, and perhaps by Christians, and uh, because of our remaining sin, maybe we at some points want to be served rather than to serve. Well, here we have a call back to Christian service, as Paul puts it here. So in verse 1, you can see he says, I beseech you, therefore. He says, I urge you, I beg you, I plead with you to do what I'm about to ask of you. And he could have commanded as an apostle. He does elsewhere. He gives commands. He'll give a command in the second verse. But the point is, he urges, he pleads with us. And and why is that? It's because ultimately God wants our heart. He wants our heart to be in it. And yes, there are commands, and we have the Ten Commandments, other commandments, and so forth, and they are just as legitimate today as they were when God gave them. But here we're reminded that God wants our hearts through the apostle. He says, I plead with you, therefore. And uh, as we think about that in Jeremiah 31, remember, that was the promise of the new covenant where God says, I'm going to take out the heart of stone from my people. I'm going to put in them a heart of flesh. And on that heart is written what? His commandments. And so the idea is that we will desire to please God, to love him, children, by doing what he commands. And so that's the idea. Paul here says, I beseech, I I plead with you. And uh, God has made this known from the beginning. And in Exodus 20, when he gave the Ten Commandments through Moses, remember there's the second commandment, forbidding idolatry. And God said this, he said, you shall not worship them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands to those who, what? Love me and keep my commandments. God wants our devotion and our affection and our love to be His. So in Matthew 22, when some were trying to trip up our Lord Jesus, they said, well, hey, what's the greatest commandment? And so he answered by saying what? He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is the first and greatest commandment. And so then as we begin this, the implication here is that it is true that God has given us commandments, yes, but at the same time, God is just as concerned about our motives for keeping His commandments as He is about us actually keeping them, right? We could just be Pharisees, and uh, the true Pharisee goes to hell. Jesus teaches that in Matthew 23. They're twice the disciples of hell because He says on the outside they're beautiful, they're whitewashed tombs, but on the inside they're full of dead men's bones. So, Paul here urges his brethren, his brothers and sisters in Christ, and even today that's you and me who are believing and trusting in the Lord Jesus to do what he says here. And so if you're following along, he says, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. By the mercies of God, according to the mercies of God, of God by means of or the agency of in light of 
these mercies of God. Well, what are the mercies of God? He's talked about God's mercy already in Romans. He's talked about how the wrath of God, chapter 1, is being revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. But then by the time you come to chapter 3, he talks about the propitiation of the Lord Jesus Christ. What is that? It's that Jesus came and he suffered the wrath of God that you and I deserve. And he made full satisfaction of God's wrath, wrath in our place. And so we are justified through the Lord Jesus when we put our faith in him. And so he's talking about these mercies, justification, that God treats us as we've never sinned. He talks about being adopted as the sons of the living God. We're the children of the living God. All of those things he's already mentioned. The forgiveness of sins. And even in the Christian life, when we suffer, God causes all things to work together for our good to those who love him and are the called according to his purpose. So these are the mercies of God that he refers to here. And so in light of these things, this is the Christian life. He says, present your bodies a living sacrifice. And when he says to present, this harkens back to the Old Testament. Perhaps the word sacrifice in your mind takes you back to the Old Testament as it should. This word presents means to stand in the presence of God as, as it were in the Old Testament, making your offering to the living God. And he says here, offer your bodies as you do this. Offer your bodies a living sacrifice. And not a dead sacrifice. He's not saying kill yourself. He's saying offer your life a living sacrifice. And when he says bodies here, I think he means body. Your external man. Flesh that is wrapped around your bones and so forth, offer yourselves. Um, Paul did not have this platonic view of, of man where uh, Plato himself said, you know, that uh, the soul is in this prison house of the body. No. As Christians, we're to serve. We're to worship God, and we do this, as we see here, through our bodies. The Scriptures talk a lot about our tongues, our hands, our feet, and so forth. And the whole man is to be used in service to God, not just our inner devotion. That is definitely there. Paul talks about that in Romans 7. He says, I desire to do this, but he says, I don't do it. Well, he's talking about that conflict, right? The inner man, the outer man. And uh, we come here to Romans 12, and he says, well, uh, make your body do what your inner man seeks to do. And so that's the idea here. In 2 Corinthians 5.15, elsewhere, Paul puts it like this. Speaking of Jesus, he said, And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. And then there's that verse in 1 Corinthians 6.9. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought with the price. Therefore glorify God in what? Your body. And in your spirit, which are God's. And so he says that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. A living sacrifice. Acceptable to God. 
which is your reasonable service. And he says, holy, acceptable to God, H-O-L-Y, and acceptable. And so when he says holy, this is something else we need to recover in our day in the church of Jesus Christ. Um, In the Bible, the word holy um, refers to that which is set apart. The root of that word is to cut, and it's to separate, to set apart. And uh, God does this with it. He doesn't cut us. He sets us apart. He does this with his people, and he does it with everything he calls holy. You know, there's the Lord's Day. Um, Now it's the first day of the week, the Sabbath, the Christian Sabbath. It's holy, and it's set apart from all the other days of the week. Um, In the Old Testament, the utensils of the tabernacle and the temple and so forth, they were holy to the Lord. So if something was deemed holy by God, he set it apart from all other things like them. Why? For his worship, for his service, for himself. And so God is calling a people to himself, and they are his holy people set apart from those he doesn't call to himself, and they are called to himself for his service, the worship of him. And so that's the idea. If you think about the book of, of uh, Leviticus, it could be summarized in one word, holy, holy. In Leviticus 19, 2, God says, you shall be holy for I, the Lord your God, am holy. And so here in Romans 12, Paul's, he's revisiting uh, what he's already talked about. I don't know if you recall as we worked through the first 11 chapters I would sometimes say that Paul is referring to something he will come back to, and this is one of those things. In Romans chapter 6, there in verse 13, he says this, And do not present your members, your body parts, your body. Do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. And so again, he tells us there, we are to present our bodies, our members, as instruments of righteousness, keeping the commands of God. And he says, do this to God. Remember we saw last time, that's why we were made. We were made for God, to bring glory to God. And so that is our reference point as we see here. By the way, when we talk about holiness, Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 14 says this, pursue peace with all men and holiness without which no man will see the Lord. And he says, as you do this, you will be acceptable to God. Now, Christ makes us accepted in the beloved through his work of redemption. But Paul, when he says acceptable to God, I think what he's talking about is you will be pleasing to God. It's like in the Old Testament when they offered the sacrifice and the smoke went up into the nostrils of God. It was what? A soothing, sweet-smelling aroma to God. And so when we do what Paul says here, we're pleasing God. And by the way, when it comes to our good works, even they need the blood of Christ. At the end of the day, we're just unprofitable servants. And so God graciously accepts our service and our good works because of the blood of Jesus. But he accepts them nevertheless. It's like parents, when your little child cleans up his or her room after you've asked him or her to do so, 
and their socks on the floor, but they say, Mommy, Daddy, I did it. And you say, oh, that's wonderful. I, 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 that is wonderful. Well, we're like that child. We don't do it perfectly, but because of the grace of God in Christ, He accepts our good works through Christ, and, and we can please God in that way, and this type of living for the Christian is acceptable, he says, to God. Now, when Paul talks about this, presenting your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, this was significant in Paul's day because of the culture in which these Christians lived, whether it was the, the Roman culture or the Greek influence that permeated their society. The Christian author Everett Ferguson uh, wrote a book years ago, Backgrounds of Early Christianity, and I'm just going to read a little bit to you, so hang in there. I'm not going to read a lot, but I want you to get an idea, a picture of the world in which they lived back then. So it says, uh, rather, Ferguson wrote this about these cultures, the Romans and the Greeks. Sexual sins were prevalent and nearly all of the catalog sins in the New Testament have many synonyms for licentiousness. Homosexuality was a common result in Greek society, which was considered the noblest form of love to be friendship between men. Some of the greatest names in Greek philosophy regarded it, homosexuality, as not inferior to heterosexual love, but it was practiced primarily among males between their early teens and early 20s. He says prostitution was a recognized institution. Some lived lives of what he calls quiet virtue. They didn't engage in these things. But he says as well, the idea of family was encouraged by the state. Yet under Augustus, the wife could not prosecute her husband for his infidelities. So under the law, it was perfectly fine for a married man to have a liaison with the registered prostitute or recognized concubine. Children were seen as a liability to the family. Since food was often hard to come by, he says families of four or five children were very, very rare. And so the answer to overpopulation and starvation was... In some cases, abortion, that didn't go well because the mothers often died. And so what they would do is practice infanticide. They, they would have their children but leave them on trash heaps outside of the city or put them in places where it was not very populated. And some of you know that the Christians would often go get those babies and adopt them or, or rear them and take care of them. And so there you have a picture of the unholy life that surrounded these Christians to whom Paul wrote in Romans chapter 12. In our day and time, you know, Isaiah 5 is, is the day, isn't it? Um, men call evil good. They call what God calls evil. They call that good. And that's the day and time in which we live. It is pressed upon us. It is said. It is, is stated. It is assumed that fornication is okay. The adultery entertainment is okay. Porn is okay. Um, homosexuality, transgender living, and all this, all of these things are fine. And it's foolishness. It's rebellion against God's created order, as Romans 1 says. I mean, I don't know if you've seen this recently. Our president has nominated a man, a biological man named now Rachel Levine, as Associate Secretary of Health. 
And there was an exchange recently as they were examining him or whatever. Um, I get confused sometimes too. Um, but there was an exchange between one senator and, and this, this man, Rachel. And he would not. This man is, is nominated for Associate Secretary of Health. He would not denounce allowing minors taking puberty, blocking hormones, or undergoing surgery to remove breast or genitalia. And so if that type of thinking is tolerated or assumed as being healthy, what other acts will this person deem as healthy? That's where we are in America. And so like never before, uh, the book of Romans, Paul's letter to them and to the Corinthians is, is so, so fitting today. I really never thought I would see in my day the things that are happening today in America. But that's the nation in which we lived and live. And Paul here calls us, the Bible, God himself, Christ, calls us to be holy and pleasing to God. And he says, this is your reasonable act of service. When he says reasonable here, that word reasonable is, is really logical. It's that Greek word, and it means or it refers to the mind, that which deals with reason. And then he uses that word service. This is your reasonable service. The word there is latria, and that word refers to the worship of God. In the Old Testament, often the word service is a synonym of worship. So in that sense, all of life for the Christian is worship. Now, not all of life is corporate worship or private worship, but we do offer our lives in the presence of God to God, and that is our reasonable, some have said spiritual, service. And so, he wants us to bear fruit. By the way, when he uses this word logical or reasonable, some translations put spiritual. It is in contrast with the external uh, offerings and sacrifices of the Old Testament. Some see it as a um, uh, contrast to those. And so he's saying basically um, this makes sense. Of course, yes, it's logical, but also it's reasonable. It needs to be of the mind and of the heart inside your spiritual worship to, to God. Now, this is only possible because of the work of the Holy Spirit, right? In Romans 8, we've already seen that. And in the administration of the New Covenant, New Testament, there is a greater measurement of the Spirit given to Christians. We are sealed with the Spirit and so forth. So this is our reasonable service and worship to God. The Lord wants more than a check. He does. That's, that's true. 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 talks about that. The Lord loves a cheerful giver. And without it, the church can't function, theoretically. Uh, we say that humanly speaking. But uh, the Lord does require our tithes and offerings, and, and yet he, he wants more than that. Jesus in John 15 said, I chose you that you should bear much, much fruit. 
that you should go and bear much fruit. And in fact, our Savior himself lays down this principle in Matthew chapter 20. There he is washing the disciples' feet. And in Matthew chapter 20 and verse 28, he says this. He says, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life, what? A ransom for many. And so the Christian life, then, is a life of service, as we see here. Now, for the non-Christian, although a non-Christian may try to serve and do things that are helpful and good in this world, I just want to mention this because the Bible makes it clear. The non-Christian cannot. It is an impossibility for the non-Christian to serve God and to please God. In fact, in Romans 8, Paul has already said this uh, as he talks about it there. He says in Romans 8, 6, For to be carnally minded, that, that is to have the mind of an un- unbeliever, is death. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity. It's at war with God. For it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. You know, we have that thing, our, our confession of faith, our doctrinal statement, and uh, the Westminster Confession, and this is what it says about the good works of unbelievers. It says, though they are useful, quote, yet because they proceed not from a heart purified by faith, nor are done in a right manner according to the word, nor to a right end, the glory of God, they are therefore sinful and cannot please God or make a man meet to receive the grace from God. And just in case you're still wondering, is that really true? Listen to Titus 1.15. Paul says, to the pure. All things are pure. That's a Christian. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, the non-Christian, to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but even their mind and conscience are defiled. So as we see here, the Christian life is a life of service. And second, we see here that the Christian life is a life of resistance. That's also in verse 2. Well, it's in verse 2, sorry. It says there, and do not be conformed to this world. The Christian life is a life of resistance. Um, There there may be times of of, um, tranquility and perhaps ease in the Christian life. But generally speaking, the Christian life is not a life or a stroll down easy street. Now, the Bible says this in Ephesians 6. It says, but we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and, and all of those things. We are in a, a fight, a battle as Christians. And 2 Timothy 2, it says that we are to be good soldiers of Christ in 1 Timothy 6, 12, it says we are to fight the good fight of faith. And here in the words of Paul, he says, do not be conformed to this world. Now, here's the command. It's a prohibition. Do not, do not be conformed. What does it mean to be conformed? To be molded, shaped, fashioned, pressed into something else. That looks like another. And so, the way he puts it here, 
in the present tense, the idea is that they were doing it. And he says, so stop doing it. And so, again, there's this constant pressure from without that is trying to press us and mold us to be like something or someone. It's the world. And so, he says, do not be conformed to this world. Well, what is the world? What in the world is the world? What is worldliness? Is it the fundamental concept? Well, Paul here is not talking about the earth because God made the earth. He created the the earth. We see that in Genesis 1, and it was all very good. But in Genesis 3, the fall did occur. God did curse the earth, but even after the fall, uh, the earth, though, though marred in its, in its goodness and all of that, it still reflects God's glory. Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. Psalm 145, God takes care of his earth. He's not talking about the earth here. In fact, in John 17, remember Jesus prays for his disciples. And in verse 15, he says to the Father, I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world just as I am not of the world. And so it is true. We say that the Christian is what? In the world, but not of it. And when he talks about worldliness here or the world, we shouldn't have the idea of pharisaical legalism. You know, the Pharisees added to the word of God. In fact, in Matthew 15 and verse 9, he says, In vain did they worship me, teaching as doctrines, the commandments of men. And so a doctrine in that sense is a teaching from God, from his word. And so they took the commandments of men that did not originate from God. They came from men and they were teaching as doctrines, the commandments of men. They elevated the commandments of men to say what God said. And that's not true. And so, you know, we hear about it, you know, I don't drink, smoke or chew or go with girls who do. Maybe if you grew up in that context or you couldn't go see a movie, you, you weren't allowed to go to the movie theater because um, even though you might go see a rated G movie, they're also, also showing a rated R movie. Someone might think you're going into the rated R movie, so you shouldn't go at all. And, you know, maybe there's some wisdom in that, but I, I don't think that's what Paul's talking about here, playing cards and all this. I could, I could say a lot more about that, but let's move on. Some of you know by experience what I'm talking about here. So the word world is, is not cosmos here, not the, the world system or, or the earth, or it's not, a, not gay, not the, the worth, you know, geography. Um, no, it's the word ion, age. The sense is age. And so do not be conformed to this age as opposed to the age which is to come, Ephesians 1 talks about. Two ages, this present evil age, the age to come. Do not be conformed to it. After all, who's behind all of this? 2 Corinthians 4, Satan, the God of this, what? World. Now, Satan's God is the living God. God is sovereign over him. But Satan is trying to drag everything and everyone down to hell with him forever. And so he's got the unbelievers under his thumb. They're following him around, Ephesians 2 says. And so the idea is this present evil age. And so the sense, the meaning, is that we do not allow the schemes of the worldviews 
of this present unbelieving age to shape our lives, our behavior, and yes, our thinking. Colossians 2.8, Paul is, is dealing with an opposing worldview, a worldview that is in opposition to the Christian worldview. It had come into the churches there, and he says in Colossians 2.8, Beware, lest anyone cheat you, mug you, rob you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. We as Christians are to be on guard against ungodly, non-Christian philosophy. Because if we accept it, Paul says, we will be robbed. No, in fact, that same verse teaches we are to have a Christian philosophy. A Christian what? Worldview. Years ago, James Boyce, he, he said basically here what Paul is talking about in, in Romans 12, when he talks about the, the present age, he talked about all the isms, you know, uh, secularism, humanism, relativism, materialism, and I would add to that today, hedonism, Marxism, socialism, whatever it is. We could talk about our appearance here. Uh-oh. <laughs> uh, but it's true. First uh, Timothy 2 says, ladies, modest apparel. I would argue that's true for men too. Modest apparel. So that you do not, Matthew 5, Matthew 18, cause a brother or another person to sin, to be tempted by his eyeballs. Jesus says, if you look at a woman and lust after her and your heart, you've already committed adultery with her in your heart. Um, it also, if we're talking about dress, Deuteronomy 22.5, God says it is an abomination to cross-dress. It is an abomination for a man to dress like a woman, for a woman to dress like a man. I realize in different ages, different cultures, that can mean different things, okay? But a woman is not supposed to look like a man. Man is not supposed to look like a woman. The effeminate, the Bible talks about the effeminate. And we have to define that. I realize that I'm just, I'm raising that as a, a, an application. And Christians, we're not to buy into all of this, this anti-Christian philosophy that is just being thrown at us from every direction in the news, the media, movies, songs. You know, let's stand in solidarity with all of these people who are shaking their fist at God. You know, the lesbians and all of this. Now, I'm not here to pick on homosexuals this morning. I'm here to say what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6. Of such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is gospel mercy for anyone who will repent of his or her sins. And homosexuality is not the, the only sin, but it's the one that's being berated. and Not berated, but it's, it's being uh, propagated in, in our society today. And so be careful what you listen to, what you watch. You know, 80s rocker here, okay, hairband stuff, okay, all that. I still like it sometimes, but... Some of that stuff I can't listen to anymore. 
Some of it I listened to him like, oh, yeah, that's bad. That's bad theology right there. Um, or what movies do we watch? What shows do we binge watch? you got to be careful because there's a message in all of these. There's a message being presented in all of these things. And I'm not telling you to throw away your TV and all that. I'm about to put mine downstairs, by the way. Um, you know, Jesus says, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it far from you. Um, so if I'm, if I'm watching too much TV, it's preventing me from being in the Word or, or, or doing whatever. And I don't watch a lot of TV, but I watch more than I should, I think. Uh, maybe I do watch too much. Those are inside thoughts coming out. <laughs> so the point is, um, beware of what the world is presenting to you. Recently, I heard about Cardi B, and I just, I'm not even going to go there this morning in detail. So the Christian life is one of service. It's one of resistance. Quickly then, third, the Christian life is a life of learning. That's there in, in verse 2, the second portion. He says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And this is a call then to transformation. God has made you holy in Christ positionally through our justification. And now he's applying that work to Christ to us. That's our sanctification. And so he's calling us out to be holy, separate from the world. And I don't mean go start a camp somewhere and put a big fence around it. That's not what I'm saying. But we're in the world. We're not of it. And so he says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And in my mind goes to R.C. Sproul's radio ministry from the 90s and thereafter. And there's a reason he called it renewing your mind. Where did he get that? Well, right here. And uh, that's what we are called to do, to be transformed. The word here in the original is metamorphosis, to undergo this internal change that causes an outer change, you know, like the worm to the butterfly and all of that. It's the same word used of Jesus' transfiguration when he stood before Peter, James, and John. They got a glimpse of his glory there. And so how are we transformed? We're commanded to undergo this transformation. How do we do it? He says there in verse 2, by the renewing of your mind. You know, your reasonable service, your logical service. Here he talks about the mind. Our minds, we're to love God with all of our heart soul, mind, or might, and strength. We're to love God with all of our being and to think His thoughts after Him. We don't do that by nature, Isaiah 55 says. And so we are to be renewed by our minds and in our minds. And so this happens by the power and the work of the Holy Spirit. It starts with regeneration, being born again, Titus 3, 5. Uh, makes that point. In 1 Peter 1, 2, he talks about the sanctification of the Spirit. The word mind here is noose. We talk about newthetic counseling as opposed to worldly psychology. Certain aspects of psychology can be helpful and, and perhaps giving an insight as to why someone might do something. But it, when it comes to correcting behavior, this is the standard, the Word of God. And so we have to keep that in mind. And, and so he talks about the noose here, the renewing of your mind. 
And so we're reminded once again, whether we look at the way Paul lays out his letters, uh, Romans 1 through 11, doctrine for the most part, Romans 12 through 14, application, Ephesians 1 through 3, and then the last portion dealing with application, we see here we're reminded that generally speaking, biblically speaking, right thinking leads to right living. And so when we preach, we should keep that in mind. We, we spend time on explaining and then some time on applying what has been said. And, uh, well, how do we do this? Well, Jesus gives us a clue in John 17, 17. Praying to the Father, he says, sanctify them, his disciples, and those who will believe in their word and become his disciples later. He says to the Father, sanctify them with your truth. Your word is truth. It's the word of God. That is how we are transformed. And so we are to think God's thoughts after him and all of these things. And remember 2 Corinthians, Paul talks about our thinking there. In 2 Corinthians 3, he says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. Where does the war happen? Where do we fight? Verse 4, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. And so when you're presented with the thought, whether it's through a movie, through uh, the media, through a song, a friend, an acquaintance, perhaps it springs up from your own heart, you need to examine that in light of the Word of God. Is that truth? Is that God's Word for me? What does God say? And children, if it's anti-God, if it's not the Bible, you smack it down. You reach inside your brain somehow and you smack it down. And you go and you say, well, what does God teach? That's what we are to do. Not to be conformed to this present age, the world in which we live. We could say much more about that. We read from Colossians 3.16 earlier. And there it talks about being filled with the word of Christ. And when we are filled with the word of Christ, all of these things happen. We begin talking differently. We sing. We, God puts a song in our heart and so forth as Christians. So we're to be transformed when we undergo this thinking. And pattern our thinking after the word of God. The spirit of God works in conjunction with that and transforms our ethic, our lives, our words, our actions. I was talking with someone recently. We were going way back thinking about when someone was not a Christian. He became a Christian. Just how that transformation happened. I remember my own life when I was a senior. I was converted. I used to drive a fellow senior to school in my car and after a few weeks after I was converted, he looked at me and said, Kevin, what's wrong with you? You're different. And I look back and I praise God for that. Praise God for that. Well, the Christian life is one of service, resistance, and learning. And then last, the Christian life is one of following. Following. He says there in verse 2, that you may prove what is the or what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. 
So he's talking about the will of God. We want to follow God and do His will. Not the will of man, Isaiah 2 and verse 22. We don't trust in men. Uh, 1 Corinthians 1, Paul says there, there were some saying, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, and all of this. No. Even Paul, who said, follow me, he said that in 1 Corinthians 11. He said, follow me as what? I follow Christ. He says that you may prove, that you may discern, that you may test what is that good, acceptable, and perfect or complete will of God. Did any of you at one point in your Christian life run around asking people, well, how do I find out the will of God for my life? I was a senior. I was about ready to go to college. Lord, you know, what do you want me to do, dentist? You know, you want me to go into finance? Uh, Do you want me to do math? What? What? Or maybe dig ditches. I don't know. Whatever you can do to the glory of God. I was going around asking everybody. And uh, I had a pastor's son as a friend. I had this circle of five. And, and uh, we, we just prayed together, read the word, and bounced ideas. And we grew. And I'm so thankful to have godly Christian men in my life. You women need to have godly Christian ladies. You men, you need to have godly Christian men in your lives. In addition to the Lord's Day. And so anyway, this, this friend, he said, well, Kevin, don't you know the, the Word of God is the will of God? My mind was blown. This is the will of God for your life. We have to distinguish, okay? We, we have to make distinct distinctions. Theologians talk about the decretive will of God, God's decree. He's ordained whatsoever comes to pass. And we don't know what that is unless he tells us in his Word. Maybe something's going to happen in the future. Yeah, Jesus is going to pe- come back. That's part of his decree, the decretal will of God. But then there's the preceptive will of God, his precept, what he requires from us, what he teaches, what he expects. That is his will for our life, his commandments. Now, when it comes to your job, your career, those are in there by implication, perhaps. Um, he talks about the, the role of a husband and a wife, a, a dad and a mom and all of that. So you have to figure that out and line up your life accordingly. And there's talents involved, you know. Um, I was not called to be a singer. I'm pretty sure of that. Some of you are not called to be an accountant or to work with your hands and be a carpenter. Other, others were. So he gives us gifts and all that. So we figure out, okay, can I survive in this job, this career, and apply the Word of God in that field, give Him glory, and do everything I do to His glory. So we have to struggle and find our way through that. But the point is, the will of God is the Word of God. The Word of God is the will of God. And so as we we talk about this, he says that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Ultimately, there is one who has already modeled this for us, hasn't he? Our Lord Jesus. He was the servant of God. He did the Father's bidding, the Father's will. He came to do that which the Father commanded him to do. And so our Savior leads by example. And he tells us, if any man come after me, let him take up his cross daily. Let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. And we follow our Lord in Christian sacrifice and service. 
You see, we're being called here to become like the one who is the perfect sacrifice, our Lord Jesus himself. J.C. Ryle wrote the book on holiness, outside of the Bible, of course. He said this, a holy man will strive to be like our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what a holy man does. In 2 Corinthians 3.18, Paul says we are transformed from glory unto glory as we behold the Lord. And he's talking about as we look into the scriptures and see the, the, the Lord and his glory, the Lord Jesus Christ, we are transformed in our sanctification from glory unto glory. And so, Christian, how does it go with you this morning? Is your life marked by one of service or entitlement? Is it marked by resistance to the world or conformity unto it? Is it marked by learning or by ignorance? Is it marked by following Christ or following the world? If you're listening to me and you think, well, Kevin, it's been a long time since I was on fire. It's been a long time since I really tried to follow this. In fact, I think I've seen where the world has crept into my thinking and my schedule and my actions and my heart. And I want you to think about this. This is good news. The Christian life is also a life of repentance. We sin every day. Repentant, repentance, turning from sin back to God, that is a grace given to us by God. We're to repent daily. So don't be ashamed of it. Don't shun it. Embrace it and do it. But we are called to repent. Jesus says, unless you repent, you will likewise perish. And so, beloved, I call upon us all to, to re-examine our schedules, re-examine our diet of media, movies, music, literature, friends, whatever, in light of the Word of God, and let us seek His will and not that of the world. Amen. Let's pray.